0: Good morning, everyone, and happy Valentine's Day. Before we begin, Judge Callahan and I would like to once again welcome and thank Judge Murphy from the Eastern District of Michigan, who's sitting with us this week. Welcome and thank you, Judge Murphy. Thank
1: you very much for having me.
0: Thank you. The cases will be called in the order listed on the docket. The first two cases, Clark versus Perfect Bar and JM versus Oakland Unified School District, have been submitted on the briefs. The first case on calendar for argument is Edwards versus Alameda Contra Costa Transit District. Will counsel for appellant please approach and proceed? Good morning, counsel.
2: Good morning. And may it please the court. My name is Naeel Benjamin, appearing for the appellant in the matter. And I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal.
0: Okay, counsel. Please be reminded that the time showing is your total time remaining. Thank you. All right.
2: May I proceed?
0: Please.
2: Today is being Valentine's Day, and appreciating some time ago that today would be the hearing date for our oral argument, I thought several times about whether it made sense to spend this day arguing about eight hundred and seven dollars. And I've come to the answer many times after thinking about this, that I absolutely have to be here to discuss this because of the nature of this case and the reasons for the sanctions. At the end of the day, what I'll be asking the court to do is not only make take a position as it relates to the bench and the robe and the person sitting in the robe on the bench and what their responsibilities are to attorneys that appear in the courtroom, but also for attorneys to be clear as to whether their conduct rises to the level of being sanctioned over what, at best, should be seen as uninformed or inexcusable neglect. In this particular situation, the core issue is that the court issued a CMC, a case management conference, months after a case had been closed, the case had been tried, and the parties had not been before that court for months. That CMC was set unilaterally. Our office was unaware of the CMC. Our office did not appear at the CMC.
0: So, counsel, are you saying that you were not noticed with this, uh, case conference? No? Nope. The judge didn't notice you in any way?
2: The court issued a, a, a standard ECF notification. Right.
0: So, if it's an ECF, it's directed that, to the attorneys electronically that, uh, are interested or should be interested in the matter, so. That's correct. Then you were noticed electronically.
2: That's correct. And
0: so that means that you elected not to open the email or what happened after that?
2: That's a great question. So there were several ECF notifications that are being issued after the case had actually been uh, tried and judgment had been entered. And all of those ECF notifications related to the proceedings related to the post-judgment proceedings. In each of those notifications, it said, warning, case closed. I think it even has the language terminated in it. And when you look at that matter, you understand that that case is closed. You're not participating in those proceedings. You have no expectation that you're going to be called to appear in those proceedings. You haven't appeared before this court since the last day in trial. So, yes, there are notifications that come in, but for for calendaring purposes, our office did not see that below, further down below, where it said warning case closed.
0: So you're saying you're, if your office gets a notice, you don't read the content of it?
2: We typically read the content for active matters. I think that's our standard. For a matter that has been closed for months mm-hmm. and for which we are no longer participating in anything going on in that courtroom, uh, we would notice that an ECF notification came in, but there was no practice of continuing to scroll down through the bottom of the ECF to see what the ECF notification was because we were already told the case was closed, we had no dealings in that courtroom, we had no activity in that courtroom, and so there would be nothing to calendar.
3: Well, you never filed a formal motion to withdraw, correct? That's correct. All right. And I'm just going to sort of cut to it from the standpoint that – and it appears that you and the judge might have – issues with
2: each other. I think that's probably fairly stated.
3: From looking at you worked together previously, there's just sort of a uh, – so I can see an element here of uh, – well, the judge apparently didn't find your explanation credible. That's correct. And perhaps that's because of past dealings that the two of you have had or any number of things. But so – it seems like we've got a couple of people here really digging in their heels, and there, this could have been, you know, you could have said, okay, I didn't file a motion to withdraw, but my client, I filed, you filed the notice of appeal, I guess, and then your understanding of it was, hey, I represent, you came in at sort of towards the end, did the, did the trial, then said, I'll file your notice of appeal, go off and you, if you want to get, if you want to get someone else to handle your appeal, do that. But there's another state proceeding that you're still representing the person in?
2: Separate matter, yes, Your Honor.
3: All right. And so it, it's not totally unreasonable that the judge would have thought, well, you're having some, you know, that that this person didn't know about, you know, that they were going for, you know, costs and attorney's fee or fees against him in So, I mean, you can sort of look at it and say, hey, these guys don't really like each other, and he, you're standing on the fact like, hey, I'm done. The client knows that I'm done. That's his problem or whatever. But you, you know, but your office is getting notices, and maybe it just could have been straightened out, but you both dug in.
2: Actually, everything that Your Honor is summarizing has truth to it except for that last part. We didn't know about the CMC. It wasn't a disregard of it in the sense that it was set and we were taking the position, you can't order us to come into court. We just didn't know. And it wasn't until after the court then contacted our office and said, you need to be in court for us. I think he maybe had opposing counsel to do it. Then we said, well, what CMC looked it up, saw that it had been set, and then said, no problem, we'll be in court and we'll address these issues. And that's essentially what we did is we said, Your Honor, we didn't know about it. Here we are. What can we do to answer the court's questions? Here's why we are here today. And instead of it being an understanding that we have been notified the case has been closed, we haven't been in this courtroom for months, we aren't a part of any of these proceedings, we simply didn't know, we apologize, because there's certainly attorneys that miss court dates in active matters, and that's not the remedy to sanction them for $807. In this case, it's not an active matter, and we didn't know. So we acknowledge that. What Your Honor just pointed out is the reason why we were sanctioned, because of the way the court felt about the attorney. Well, not he didn't
3: it, make a finding of bad faith.
2: I'm he sorry, Honor, could you repeat not. that? He
3: did not make a finding of bad
2: faith. Correct.
3: So let's say that's necessary. Correct. Then it would go back, and um, I think you tried to disqualify this judge before you started the trial,
2: too. We absolutely did.
3: So, and this, and because it's sanctions, he, this judge would be the one that would be appropriate to determine whether it was in bad faith or not. Do you think you have a chance to not be in bad faith?
2: I know with certainty that based on the bad faith standard, and based on what we're even discussing here today, there's simply no evidence of bad faith. So, will the judge follow the law? I would like to think so. But can I say with certainty how the judge will deal with it? I can't, and I won't offer an opinion on that. But I can say that there's certainly no evidence to support a finding of bad faith when the facts show that we've been at every courtroom, we've been at every court date, we uh we've never been late. Um, we 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 simply didn't know we were asked to come back to court several months after the case had been closed, and when we learned we needed to come to court, we came.
0: Counsel uh- one of our cases, Evan versus Law Offices of Sydney Mick- Mickle. Are you uh, familiar with that case, Evan? I am not. It appears to say that, that the district court may levy sanctions if there's a finding of bad faith or for willful violation of a court order. Why wouldn't this be willful violation of a court order that wouldn't require a finding of bad faith?
2: For the same reasons that we just discussed in terms of the facts that led to the understanding that we were supposed to be in court, had no knowledge. I mean, zero knowledge. There wasn't a, the, the, the mistake here is not seeing the ECF notice that said CMC has been set. Willful has to have some degree of awareness, and then you can be mistaken in the choice you make. But there has to be some degree of mens re as it relates to the activity here, there was absolutely no knowledge of the need to be in court, and we expressed that. And it would be okay if the court simply said, Mr. Benjamin, I think you're a terrible lawyer, and there's no way you should have failed to know that, but I can't prove that you didn't know it. Then you don't have on a basis to sanction
3: So what the district court found was that your explanation was not credible, particularly because you never filed a motion to withdraw as counsel. Would that Would that summarize the district court findings?
2: I think that does.
1: Alright, counsel,
0: that does. did you want to save your remaining time for rebuttal?
3: I
2: have 30, 30 seconds we'll left. we will give you
0: a minute. I'll take the mic. I'm really generous.
2: I, I'd like, if a you don't mind, I
1: just want to say one thing, which is that, um, both of my colleagues have, I think, analyzed the case very well, and you seem like a honest person and a good advocate, and, uh, I know you, lawyers tend to work hard and be aggressive, and judges can get s- stressed out, but uh, I think in the future, you know, if people cool down, file a mo- notice of withdrawal, you know, might be able to avoid having you to come on a $800 case in front of the Ninth Circuit, and maybe the judge can be a little more patient as well, and we'll get through these things better.
2: I appreciate that, Your Honor, and hey. I accept that.
1: All right. All
0: right. Thank you, Counsel.
1: Thank you. I have a question for you.
4: Good morning. Good, Good morning. morning.
1: How are you? Present
4: on behalf of the appellees. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor.
1: Judge uh, Rawlinson cited uh, Evan, and my question to you is, uh, uh, did the judge – okay, there's no question the judge didn't make any fine out a bad faith before levying the sanction. I've got well, the order here in front of me, but the question is – doesn't the judge have to say to mr benjamin uh, you know either I'm finding bad faith or he can't he can't just issue an order willy nilly under uh nineteen twenty seven and the inherent powers of the court he can can't just say uh, you acted in bad faith and willfully with absolutely no evidence of it, I'm fining you eight hundred dollars. There's got to be some sort of process here well, before you he issues an order like this.
4: Yes, actually the, the judge did cite every single act of misconduct that he found. And under Fink, you don't have to use the words you acted in bad faith. The court can look to the totality and determine that the uh the conduct or the misconduct or acts or omissions Were in fact uh, tantamount. So, where in
3: in Fink specifically does, or any Ninth Circuit case, does it state that the district court need not make a specific finding of bad faith before issuing sanctions under its inherent power? I don't see that exactly in Fink.
4: I believe we cited that in our brief, and it says I, I also believe that Fink says the court must make a finding of bad faith or a finding of circumstances tantamount to bad faith. So I didn't interpret that as to say that the court has to say you acted in bad faith. But looking at the court's order, the sanctioning order, he lists – these are the things that he listed. Appellant failed to follow court orders, Mr. Benjamin. He failed to keep his client adequately informed of post-trial proceedings. He did not respond to the motion to garnish his client's wages. He disobeyed court order for him and his client to appear at the CMC. He failed to tell his client he needed to appear.
1: That's all past behavior prior to the failure to file the motion to withdraw. Pioro says in 1986, a finding of bad faith is usually necessary to support an award of attorneys' fees under 1927. Primus Auto Financial Service versus Batarse was 1997. Which says the court must make an explicit, fi- this is quote, the court must make an explicit finding that counsel's conduct constituted or was tantamount to bad faith, citing Roadway Express, which is a Supreme Court case from 1980. So unless those cases have been overruled, it seems to me the judge has to explicitly find that what Mr. Benjamin did in failing to withdraw constituted bad faith, and I don't see that here.
4: Well, under, that would be under the inherent power aspect. And the, the sanctioning order cited both Section 1927, which requires a finding of recklessness or
0: uh, and a multiplication of the proceedings. But the problem is there is no A listing of the acts does not constitute a finding. What language are you relying upon to say that there was a finding of either willful disobedience well, of a court order or bad? Faith. What language specifically encapsulates those theories?
4: Well,
0: I mean in the sanctioning order? Correct.
4: Well, I I, I read the first five um That's items. a
0: listing right. of the, then, the acts. And like, then
4: what? he summed it up by saying that Mr. Benjamin's explanation was not credible. And I just need to, if I uh, could. How would
1: he know that? How would the judge know that?
4: Well, first of all, because Mr. his client was present, Mr. Edwards, was present at the OSC hearing and told him, I never heard anything about the garnishment proceedings. He never told me anything. Wait
1: wait a minute. Post-failure to withdraw. Correct. My understanding was the client nor the counsel showed up for the ordered hearing.
4: Neither one showed up. There was a big... let me just backtrack a little bit.
1: So how would, how would the judge know at that hearing without further findings questioning evidentiary matters that Mr. Benjamin was not credible?
4: Because, well, let me backtrack. Let me, in fact, I'd like to, if I could, backtrack to the initial document that Mr. Benjamin is relying on, where he says it, uh, he got the electronic notification, as did my office, saying the case was uh, closed. On the same page, in that same notification, just two lines below, there's in full caps, it says Bill of Costs, and it says it, it sets the deadlines for objections to the Bill of Costs. So obviously, There are two communications in this same document. One is that the substantive case is is closed and 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 the date uh, that the case was closed was the date the judgment was entered. And then it notifies that there are still other proceedings happening, which is usually what happens after judgment is entered. That's when the costs are dealt with. They never are dealt with before judgment. And so he's already on notice. The costs are gonna be filed. And he doesn't respond. He the, he doesn't object. Well, it's
3: from my experience, it, particularly in criminal cases, it's not um, it's not unheard of that uh, lawyers will they'll represent him at trial. They'll fire their notice for of appeal, and then they say, "Hey, you're on your own from here." I put you know that I you're not the court's not going to lose jurisdiction, but I'm not going to represent you on appeal. Um, that. It's not un- that's something that's not unheard of to me, but um, but you argue, I think, in your brief that the evidence of the district court's alleged bias against Mr. Benjamin is irrelevant to our review of the sanctions orders, and why would that be?
4: Well, because
3: I, I mean, th- they don't. They, they clearly, it, it's it's not unlike watching two stallions. Fighting it out or whatever, and that they they clearly don't i don't know what that they both work together i don't know there's 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 past dealings he tried to disqualify the judge previously, and that was denied um, judges aren't supposed to take that personally, but um, it's uh, you know that it clearly when when y you have to argue that There isn't a finding of bad faith in all of that. Why isn't this bad blood relevant to that?
4: Well, first of all, I think if he thought that there was bias involved in the substantive portion of the case through trial, he filed a notice of appeal on behalf of the same client, Mr. Edwards, and he could have taken it up then. That was the time to take up any problems with bias, and then the case did close, He filed a notice of appeal. He didn't pursue it. But then there were still the post- Well, but
3: are you saying you just because you represent someone at trial, you have to represent them on appeal? You don't. It's a separate, whatever your agreement is.
4: You don't have to, but Mr. Benjamin did. He filed a notice of appeal. Well, filing
3: a notice of appeal, what I am saying is not uncommon in practice, and then tell people, go get a lawyer to handle the appeal.
4: Yes, I would- I would agree, typically, except not only did he file a notice of appeal, he was still pursuing a state court action with the same client, with the same – my law firm was involved and and still is involved. And so the assumption was, because they were still having contact, was he's still representing Mr. Edwards.
1: May I interrupt briefly? I think you're an excellent appellate lawyer. I don't know much about your practice, but I think you're very persuasive here today. What I don't understand – is why your client has a position in this. This seems to be something that's entirely between Mr. Benjamin, his client, and the district court, and why the Alameda Transit, County Transit Agency has a strong position in this is beyond me. This behavior all occurred after the case was over, the judgment was lodged, the appeal was taken. I don't, I don't quite understand what...
0: For the costs awarded to you? Pardon? Were these costs awarded to you?
4: Yes, yes, and we haven't collected, but I I did want to make one other point.
3: But you didn't answer the question. Why, why are you, why are you so intent on defending the judge and what does that really have to do with your client? You won, right? You got your, you got your fees and why do you care?
4: I, I wish we didn't have to respond. We felt that because there was an appeal made that we had to respond to it, uh, and that we couldn't just ignore it. But I, It was,
3: it's not appeal of your fees, right?
4: No,
0: no. It's
3: just appeal, it's between whether he should be
0: sanctioned or not. But the sanctions will go to you, the amount will go Correct. to you. Correct, yes, That's, it was for, it was
4: yeah. for the time that we spent for the extra hearing, but the, the one other point I wanted to make was, and that has never been explained by Mr. Benjamin is that in addition to all the electronic filings that he received that he felt he didn't have to respond to, he also got an email from my former colleague, Ms. Brown, who said to him, and this was in July of 2018, she said, um, you know, we knew that he hadn't contested the costs. The costs were significant. They were over $17,000, and she sent an email to Mr. Benjamin saying, we want to know if Mr. Edwards would like to work out some sort of a payment schedule before we have but to go in. But the judge in.
0: didn't mention any of this in his order. N-
4: no, but Infections what? But I'm, I'm saying this because it could have avoided all of the garnishment proceedings. It could have <clears> – <throat> this, in fact, did multiply proceedings more than it had to be because – He didn't tell
0: Mr. Edwards that we made an offer. But the judge didn't make a finding of any of that, and that's sort of the difficulty. Just listing all of these things to me, and I'm I'm not speaking for anyone else, without saying that this, as a result, I'm finding that it was willful or that there was bad faith, to me it's left hanging without the conclusion of what these acts. He um, said that he didn't advise him. He failed to
4: respond to the the motion to garnish his – because the client didn't know. And the client said when he was – he and Mr. Benjamin were ordered to come to the OSC hearing, he told the court. He said, I didn't know anything about the garnishment. Okay, so
3: what if he's completely incompetent, let's just for the moment, that he's just an ignoramus, a boob, completely incompetent? Is that – Willful or bad faith? Let's say if you, if you look at all those things and you say, yeah, he should have done all of those things. But the, the reason that he didn't do all of those things has to be that he willfully or he did, or it was bad faith conduct. Not that he is negligent, incompetent, or would you agree under the sanctions?
4: Well, I think at a certain point, your incompetence becomes inexcusable,
0: and it is bad faith. When Well, if the judge had said that, perhaps, but he didn't.
3: There are people that are actually really incompetent that don't have a bad faith bone in their body. That doesn't really justify the incompetence. But the problem with anything like sanctions, contempt, or whatever, they're very specific, and sometimes... They're, and, and they're very exacting, and sometimes when people really don't like each other, they don't make the findings that they need to make.
0: Council, would, do you think it would be fruitful at all for us to send this case to our mediators for mediation? I,
4: I don't think it's worth spending further time on it. Well, frankly. we've spent some time here yes, today. Yes, we <laughs> have, we have. And I, if I could just say one more thing, it,
3: and we actually spent some time before we came here, <laughs> reading all of your briefs and preparing and reading I'm all sure. the law. Yeah. A lot of
4: time has gone into this already. Um, I, I agree. And, it, frankly, I think it would have been easier for Mr. Benjamin just to, you know, pay the sanction. And no, but that's, 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 I understand that's of some
0: moment p- to an attorney. Um, because it's easier when people plead guilty or take responsibility yeah. for their actions,
3: too, but there's a lot of trials where people don't do that.
0: There, there are consequences to that. For for instance, if he were ever to want to become a federal judge, that would be a mark against him if, okay. that he's been sanctioned. So it's a serious matter for an attorney to have sanctions imposed upon I understand,
4: him. and I don't mean to make light of it, but I do want to say that the court – the District Court did cite both Section 1927, which doesn't have as stringent a standard as uh, the inherent power, which does require a
0: finding but of bad faith. But reco- something I mean, there should be some, regardless of whether it's the inherent power or 1927, there should be some indication of willfulness or bad faith or vexatiousness or some kind of indication of the conclusion that the court has reached regarding the manner in which these activities were undertaken. Well, the reason
4: that I think that the email, which is not an electronic filing, but it was from one attorney to another saying, we have, we'd like to work Such something. Judge didn't rely on that. Well, uh, but he did because me. I think he. Barned, 664 F2nd,
1: 1343 says, 1920, 1927 justifies Sanctions on attorneys who, one, intentionally commit misconduct, two, are reckless, or three, act in bad faith. And the order assessing the $805 didn't have any of those findings. Well, it just didn't.
4: I will then submit, but I do, the reason I keep coming back to that is that Mr. Benjamin was then on notice that there were proceedings in the court. Right, so counsel, the fact we, that he continued to ignore electronic filings... The judge had said that,
0: we, it would be an easier case. All right. Thank you, counsel. Thank, thank you. Thank you. you. Rebuttal?
2: Thank you very briefly. I, I just want to make clear for the record, you know, our relationship with Mr. Edwards would be substantially frayed if we had failed to Inform him of what was going on. We would not still be his lawyers in this matter. We are still his lawyers in this separate state. But didn't he
0: represent to the court that he didn't know what was going on?
2: I think that in answering a question presented to him as it related to the opportunity to have cost waive in lieu in exchange for dismissing a uh, an appeal, he said he was unaware of that offer being on the table. And I will submit that there were misrepresentations to the court as it relates to that communication. But I didn't get into that because the court basically made me stand silent. And so I didn't want to – and, in fact, the court made me sit down uh, while he spoke to Mr. Edwards as if I wasn't present and didn't have a voice, and I just let that happen. So I say here, I just want to be clear for the record, we did not fail to execute our duties to inform Mr. Edwards of what was going on, but we couldn't get into it in court there, of course, because there's attorney-client privilege, and right, it would well, not we be. Don't, we
1: don't know that either. and Correct. We're not going to have an evidentiary hearing here, but I think you may be with this judge again, and I think – Instead of doubling down or, I, I think it might be, you know, made a mistake, I'm sorry, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I think that's kind of where briefed. I'm at. Because and that's if, what we briefed.
0: If we remand this case, you, you're right back where you started. You're still in front of the same judge. You still have his inclination to sanction you. And so what do you imagine will happen there? Because it's, you're, you're back to square one. It's the best you can get here.
2: Here's what I hope happens because I can tell you what I imagine, but here's what I hope, and I'll quote from what these courts have said, both the Ninth Circuit, Second Circuit, et cetera, and it's briefs on our briefs, pages 24 and 25. A troublesome aspect of a trial court's power to impose sanctions, either as a result of a finding of contempt, pursuant to the court's inherent power, or under a variety of rules, such as Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 11 and 37, is that the trial court may act as accuser, fact-finder, and sentencing judge, not subject to restrictions of any procedural code and at times not limited by any rule of law governing the severity of sanctions that may be imposed. The absence of limitations and procedures can lead to unfairness and abuse.
3: All right. You don't have to be a rocket scientist either to realize that if a judge tells you you need to look at these things in the future and you still continue to – take this position you know that that you know a lot of it's sort of like the person that uh, that argues with the officer when they might have gotten a warning and they continue to stand on their rights and I did nothing wrong and even though i I wasn't as much over and then they get the ticket and then I would see them in court all the time so
2: it just Lesson learned in our office will certainly handle any case closed in the future much differently, but I just wanted to at least address that issue.
0: Alright, thank you counsel. Thank, thank you, you. Thank, you, Ron- you counsel. thank you, The case just argued is submitted for a decision by the court.